0: This episode of Grub Street is brought to you by Fully Committed Starring Modern Family's Jesse Tyler Ferguson This hilarious comedy about the restaurant biz Is now in previews on Broadway at the Lyceum Theatre For tickets, visit fullybroadway.com
1: Nobody should pay any attention to those reviews on the internet that are consumer-based
0: Agreed I don't think there's any disagreement there We have a very special guest today. Mimi Sheridan is joining us on this edition of the Grub Street Podcast. She was, of course, the New York Times was it the food critic back then or the restaurant critic? The official title.
1: I guess restaurant, but I did food too. So I restaurant think that's and food critic. From I think food. it was
0: 1975 to
1: 1983.
0: 1976 to 1984. There we go, and you almost got it yeah, well, I got. was just a year off. She is. A obviously still a very prolific food writer. She has a new book, Thousand uh, Things to Eat Before You Die." 1,000 to One eat thousand foods. One thousand foods to eat before you die. I keep I'm I'm like I'm batting eighty five percent here. I'm <laughs> batting about fifty two percent. And oh yes, and as always, the grumbling is coming from our our New York magazine restaurant critic Adam Platt, who joins us as well. Hello, Hello. Adam.
2: Hi, Alan. I'm Amy.
0: We are actually in the private dining room of Via Caroda a year, year and a half old restaurant in the West Village. And the reason we chose this restaurant is because I think it embodies a lot of the characteristics of a modern New York and American restaurant. Right now it's Italian, which a lot of restaurants are. It's mostly a bar, it's very casual, it's a cafe all day. There is not really an appetizer entree structure to the menu, it's a lot of small plates, a lot of sharing, very straightforward, high-quality ingredients, cooked very simply, and just a very comfortable place. Also,
2: it's close to Mimi's house.
0: Helps. (laughs) That helps. And we're going to get to have some lunch. And we're going to have some lunch. Talk with our mouths. And we are going to talk about how restaurant criticism has changed over the years, or maybe hasn't changed over the years. You were saying earlier, you don't think that the the role of the, the restaurant critic has changed much.
1: No, I certainly don't think the role has changed. The role of a critic is to guide readers to places they might want to eat or might want to avoid, and what might be good to order when they get there. That's the role of the critic. The method of criticism, the method of delivery of the criticism may have changed, but that, to me, is the role of the critic, and I would say the critic is on the consumer side, not the restaurant or the industry side, and I can't imagine that that has changed or should not change.
2: Let's talk about the environment, though. You began uh, writing about food and restaurants in the 70s, right?
1: I began much 16, earlier 70, than 16. that for the first Village Voice, Q, so
2: on. So... Why don't you describe for us a little bit how the environment, uh, the restaurant environment in the city has changed?
1: I think it's a quicker environment now, a more pressured environment, in that so many are opening so rapidly, and that so many are trying to do what is innovation or more modern cooking or more creative, and every chef has a goal, What he's trying to do, something I try not to look at or hear anything about because it's dinner and I don't care what he's trying to do. Um, But, you know, there have always been new restaurants. There have always been restaurants that were trying to do things in new ways. I do think it's um, more rapid and more places open now.
2: These days, from my point of view, everything's a two-star restaurant, basically. And so Everything the, is, is, a, two, is essentially a two star restaurant. All the new restaurants that I'm, that I, you, we can debate about this, but the restaurants generally that we could interview do not tend to be in the classic four star Liberta range. It's a whole cavalcade of similar bar type restaurants of the kind where we are today. And so it's really, the, the critic's job is to convince the reader which ones are the best and which ones, which ones are Yeah, but people. I
1: don't think they're all two-star. I think uh, they may be the same type of restaurant, but some produce much better food than others. You go in to have dinner. Is it really good or is it not? You may have to explain something to readers that says there are no appetizers and no entrees and, and this is the way you order. But ultimately, the food is either good or it isn't. The service is either good or it isn't. That's true. Uh, the price is even exorbitant. Well, maybe, maybe what this I'm, is what I'm saying the all the star
2: system. Maybe the star system needs some readjustment.
0: Well, I think that the you're talking What's about the like, trappings of the
2: restaurant. I'm talking about the classic Michelin, New York Times... Sort of uh, high and mighty ratings of restaurants, and in my view, there are less of the the high, the the, the fancy ones these days, and many, many more of the the, the moderate ones. Well, it's and it leads on the part but of this critic. A moderate one, at least,
1: a moderate one, could get
2: four stars. I, I have a five star system. I never get five stars. <laughs> I've only I have I've given two restaurants five stars in my. Oh, you have five. No, stars? No, you've never given I've five. Never, I've given two restaurants five stars, and I've taken them away.
0: In your words, let the record show. That every Friday, when you are finishing your review, there is a constant stream of expletives coming from your desk about how many stars you are going to give. Let the record
2: show that this critic and I met me hates the star system. What about you, Mimi? I love it.
1: It forced me to come down to a final opinion. I had to struggle. What do I do? I think it's four. Mm. Do I think it's three? And I, was, that was sort of reductive, and I thought very helpful. I mean, I gave like, four what, what stars to Hatsuhana. Everybody was incensed. A sushi place with a sushi—it was brand new. It was fabulous. Every bit of food was good. Uh, I gave three to an Indian vegetarian restaurant, and all the French and Italian restaurateurs went crazy because how can you give three stars to anything that isn't French? Uh,
2: well, you were operating at a time when. It was this very continental-centric world and that these, these these other foods were just coming out of the scene. Yeah, except, and for, you being Chinese. Like,
1: Chinese except for Chinese. Chinese was all, always, you know, it was just the beginning of northern cooking. Uh, it was quite interesting. Italian restaurants first, you know, were Southern Italian immigrants who came here and did red sauce, Mm -hmm. but, and the Indian restaurants around the theater district were all people from Southern India. And then suddenly we began to hear North Indian cooking, North Italian cooking. Um, And that was much higher class, much more expensive, much fewer, many fewer of the dishes people were used to, so there was suddenly a change to gourmet status to something that had not been quite gourmet status before.
0: As a critic, do you feel like in addition to saying these restaurants are good and bad, which is the most basic part of that job, it's also an opportunity to introduce readers to these things that they might yes. not know of? I mean, you're talking about new cuisines. Yes, and,
1: and to explain if it's a, a, an exotic menu, something they're not used to, the sense behind the menu, what do they eat in this place, and then what are the dishes what do you know what do they have in it? so people know how to make a choice and don't feel at a loss you you want to make it easy for the customer and the customer I cared about was not the foodie it was not the profession it was people middle-class people who would come into New York for a special occasion on a, on a anniversary or a birthday and then everyone else who could draw from that review was welcome to, but that was the middle level I kept in mind. And uh, I wrote a review that I would want to read if I were trying to decide whether to go to a restaurant. And that's the way I would still write them, and whether I would have readers is the question, because I think the style of reviews have changed a great deal. They're much more talky. Uh, Many of them delve into uh, long descriptions of the zeitgeist, uh, what's going on around it. There are referrals to music, referrals to writers, so that you know that this is an in place. I don't care about that. There are some reviews which I don't read the first column and a half because I don't care. That's
2: me, the zeitgeist guy. So we call you Mr. Zeitgeist. Just call me Doctor Zeitgeist. Doctor Z. The reason I, I find myself writing about the Zeitgeist, whatever that whatever that word means, is that restaurants. It seems to me these days they're much uh, uh, a more central part of the cult, even the cultural conversation yes. in the city. Not just yes. in the here, but all over. the Food and yeah, Everywhere. Yeah. There's been a revolution, right? The old the old French uh, kings and queens have been deposed, and now we have the chefs with their tattoos running around and. Uh you know, the kitchens are open for everybody to see, the 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 maitre D's with their snooty accents have by and large disappeared. So it really is a cultural sort of circus. And yeah. so as a critic, I, that's how I try to describe it.
0: Let's order some food.
2: Well, I'm on a diet, so you know what? I'm getting like a salad. They have that I they even bought these special then. crackers to I eat on my want, diet. Um, special crackers. <laughs> yeah. I might have How's the sushi ranking
0: going? Hotel-y. Before we move on, a word from our sponsor. Support for the Grub Street podcast comes from the hilarious new Broadway play Fully Committed. Starring five time Emmy Award nominee Jesse Tyler Ferguson of Modern Family, Fully Committed takes a sharp skewer to the backside of the restaurant biz. Jesse plays Sam, a reservationist at one of New York's most exclusive restaurants, who juggles desperate diners, scheming socialites, name dropping wannabes, celebrity divas, panicked waiters, and a fame hungry chef. And in this side-splitting tour de force, Jesse plays all 40 characters. Don't miss Fully Committed. It's on Broadway for only 15 weeks, so make your reservation now at fullybroadway.com.
2: What's your view? Thank you very much. Do you uh, engage in sort of disguises? When Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I wore wigs, I didn't wear costumes but I had three different wigs and I had quite a number of pair of eyeglasses with plain lenses because I didn't ever wore glasses and I had a friend in the iframe business so I had about six pairs that of course had clear glass because that could throw people off but I had very different wigs. So
2: did you have a rotation, did you wear them, did you disguise yourself every time or Almost every
1: time almost every time right. unless oh. it was a place where I knew they really knew me then it would be silly and there are few things more embarrassing than coming in with a wig and having them say good evening Miss Sherrod of
2: course in this day and age for the record no wigs for platy, All right. no wigs for Platty. no wigs for the record if Platty came into a restaurant wearing a wig in this day and age it would be online in what? Minute and a half? But
1: that's the problem.
2: It would it would hysterical be Instagrams. Cackles and laughter foreign wide. I would love
0: it if you came to dinner
2: one night <laughs> with a wig.
1: But you know, I always made the reservation under another name. I was always almost always with four people and I would have the other two guests arrive first yeah. to see the treatment at the door before I came and if I were very much in doubt I would say I'm going to deliberately be late you order an appetizer so we can see and that produced amazing results I mean it produced um, stale bread being taken off the table and baskets of fresh bread it, in the days of the um, pastry wagon if around 9 30, 10 o'clock at night most of the cakes had been cut into whisk it away and bring out fresh cakes, which you know no restaurateur wants to cut into at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, Lots of things like that, including a big exchange of smoked salmon at the Four Seasons, many, many years ago. They just whisked away a dried out tail that they were about to slice for my friends and came in with all (laughs) of the fish. People have called in chefs from other places. I mean, I wrote a piece for Vanity Fair on what a restaurant can do when a critic appears unexpectedly. And there were many, many things. And at that time, there was a very good restaurateur in New York, Adi Giovanetti, who had the restaurant, Il Nido. And he called me and he says, Signora, we can do a lot more than that. You don't
2: even know the half of it. <laughs> Somebody told me... Uh that they 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 sometimes uh, quite often actually will tailor certain dishes to when they think the rest of the the recording is coming and, and the restaurant I think it was I think it was Danny Meyer he said we have what we call plat nip for when the giant plat <laughs> figure appears which is like of course you know giant haunches of pig and you know, ribs and whatever uh, so they're like they're thinking they're thinking about it a lot. Yeah, well, a lot.
0: What's funny is going out with you. To a new restaurant, the meal takes about twice as long as it does, and it's not because you're ordering more food. It's because the length between the courses takes a long time. Thrown
2: out that chicken; it wasn't quite perfect. It's it's right.
0: it's actually it's like, it's strange. How different the whole vibe is different. The staff is on their best behavior in a way that they aren't when you're not there. I know they're they're afraid of making a mistake. Sometimes it seems, and the whole the whole experience is just completely different going with you and without you to the same restaurant. Absolutely, takes
1: (laughs) much much longer when they know you're. You
2: noticed when you're wearing your wigs that it was more natural. Right. 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 Did you take notes?
1: Never took a note. You
2: mind like a trap. Mind like you didn't. You didn't shuffle off to the bathroom or
1: no. No when I traveled, when I, for example, spent four weeks in France for the Times, and that was a long span, and I would steal menus in those days because there weren't, I might check on the menu what I had when I got back to the hotel room. Once or twice there was something about a place I knew I would forget because it wasn't the food. Uh, I remember one, I don't remember the restaurant, but it had some kind of very unusual red ceiling and I said to my husband, take out your notebook and we'll talk about what you're going to buy at the A&P tomorrow and <laughs> write down red ceiling. But I harder. never I
2: never yeah. took a note. Now you can just look at the menu of the internet. Yeah, but you up. have to
1: be sure, um, you know, it's the current uh, How many right. times
2: would you visit a place? Two, uh, the three, time,
1: four? Oh, well, the times rule was three, minimum. And I often went six, eight. My There's God. one I went to my 12 God. times because... When I had it all done and ready for review, we had a three-month strike, newspaper (laughs) strike. So I thought, this restaurant's been going on for three months and it was new, I better go back a couple of times to see if that review was on 57th Street. How much time did
0: you typically wait between the time that a restaurant opened and the time that your review would come out?
1: That depended a little bit on the um, amount of publicity, the opening engendered before it. In other words, how quickly did it become a hot topic? But the the fact that I had to go at least three times meant it almost always took a month or six weeks before I saw enough. And I would try to do, you know, a dinner and a lunch. And I always went out, maybe it should be an autobiography title, I always went out on Saturday night. Because that was the night the bridge and tunnel crowd comes. That's when restaurants, often the chef isn't there, often the owner isn't there. And I wanted to see what happened to people.
2: Under the worst circumstances, essentially. Right,
1: Right. So I always went out on
2: Saturday. What about uh, tales of uh, chef outrage? I've been kicked out. Where'd you get kicked out? uh, I've been kicked out. The water The good ones all get kicked out.
1: The Water Club uh, because I had given Buzzy O'Keefe a bad review for the River Cafe or at least not a glowing review and one night, it was shortly before the Christmas season, we were five people and we were in the Water Club and we ordered some wine and we were drinking. We didn't get menus. And then we ordered a second bottle, and my husband said, well, we don't have menus, and the manager came over and said, we have reason to believe there is a critic in this crowd, <laughs> and we are not ready to serve critics yet. And we had already gone over this at the Times. Oh. That, first of all, you don't lie, you say yes, uh, but uh, you leave. Because according to all the New York State hospitality laws, A restaurateur or a hotelier can keep out anyone he wants as long as it's not on the basis of sex, religion, or race. If he doesn't want anybody there in red dresses, he doesn't have to give you it. And so we left and we wanted a check for the two bottles of wine, one of which we were going to take with us because it had just opened. They didn't want to give us a check, so my husband said, we will not leave this table until we'll be here tonight, we'll be here tomorrow, we'll be here tomorrow morning until we get a check for the wine. We got the check. Buzzy O'Keefe called every news service. By the next morning, friends were calling from New Orleans, from San Francisco. We hear you were kicked out of a restaurant.
2: Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I, I always... I, mean, I think out, out, outrage is part of the job, and i surprised it doesn't have more, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah, we're credits, well, where you, the you, you know, They are putting their heart and soul into the situation. But
1: letters, they took full page ads in the Times refuting the review. The, the Times made more money from a bad review than a good review because they would yeah. take these full page ads. She wasn't here, she was crazy.
2: My made favorite What's your favorite cuisine?
1: Chinese. Yeah, However, everywhere. Uh, I, should <laughs> I should not be left alone with hard salami. I
2: should not
1: be left alone with you know, Mrs. Wick's cheddar that I get I, I should get not be
2: left alone
0: with hard <laughs> I salami. I think we have another autobiography title. <laughs> Let
2: me tweet that one. <laughs> uh, favorite uh, eating town? Places. I used to love
1: eating in New Orleans. I haven't been there in a long time, but that was fun. It was a place where... If you wanted a really great meal, you went to seven or eight different places and had the specialty at each. That used to be, you know, the gumbo here, but the jambalaya there, the crabs here.
0: But it's almost gotten like that here, where you can go, especially in a neighborhood like this, you can go have one dish here, one dish here, and you can really kind of create a night out of that. You can get in. But it's easier, I feel like it's gotten a lot easier to get in lately than they really? have been before. If you're not going to the new, new, new restaurant, I think a lot of times you can. The waits are not, you know, for a long time. It was two-hour waits. Nobody was taking reservations in New York.
1: I once um, was introducing, uh, interviewing Thomas Keller in San Francisco,
2: chef at Per Se,
1: and the French Laundry. Let's not forget that. And because he had restaurants in New York, and in California, I asked him what is the difference in the audiences that you find between the customers in each place and he said something that was immediately corroborated by Michael Bauer who's the restaurant critic of the Chronicle this was a big meeting and he was there they care more about ingredients in California and more about preparation in New York and I understood that perfectly because I am NOT going to go to a restaurant and order heritage tomatoes for $18
2: Times have changed.
1: Um, I did a book with Alan King once, and and Alan was a great restaurant buff, great food buff, cook, everything. And he said, I like to see a little cooking for my money. (laughs) And so do I. (laughs) So I told Thomas, I know where to buy a heritage tomato. I have a sawtooth knife. I have sea salt.
0: That's tough, though, in New York, because I think a lot of people don't cook. And, and so you go to restaurants and you do see things that, as someone who can cook, you think, oh, I could do that at home. Why am I at well, a restaurant for Well, you can slice a tomato. Yeah, right. right.
1: Every, everybody can slice <laughs> a I tomato. And I
0: can go to the farmer's market and get a similar tomato.
1: Right. Do you cook? Because we're talking about cooking cook
2: a fair touch little bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I can grill roast things. Chicken. I can roast things. And I can cook things in a pot. But I'm not... I'm much more of a consumer. I'm not the. I, I don't have the obsessive qualities of a really good sh- mm. chef or cook. Or but I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Mm. Uh, so I cook things that I can readily consume. The problem is that I live with uh, two diminutive daughters and a diminutive wife. So if I cook a lot, I end up eating everything, and I'm eating everything anyway, all the time. No, so that's so, not it's, so, so no. it's
1: not inspiring. So it's
2: not. You're right. It's not an inspiring situation for me. I think my hope is that when I'm finished with this. Daily round of you know whale-like consumption that I will have time to sort of sit back. Because I maybe that's happened with you. For
1: me, it began with cooking.
2: You you grew up in Brooklyn, right? right. You grew up in a a cooking household. Very much so. Mother.
1: My first book was about that from my mother's kitchen and it was sort of with autobiographical stories and my mother's recipes. And my father was in the business. He was a wholesale fruit and produce merchant in Washington Market, in the area now known as Tribeca. So he used to come home talking about the difference of apples on the west coast and apples on the east coast, and oranges from Florida versus California, grapefruit. So this was sort of the talk that got around and I think I began to develop a sense of discernment, that not every tomato is the same, not every orange is the same, so you begin to taste. And between my mother being a wild cook, I mean, she made traditional things, she took recipes from newspapers, and we would comment on the food at the time. I don't like it this way, I like it better the way you did it last time, you know. And I used to do my homework in the kitchen. So I could see what my mother was preparing for dinner I always knew what a meatloaf looks like When it's being mixed up You know, certain things So that when you get to do it yourself You say, oh, this looks, didn't look this wet When my mother made
2: it So I love it Well, you're a cook I came at it from cooking You're a discerning individual
0: Well, I came at it from, you know I went to culinary school Worked in restaurants long enough to know That I didn't want to work in a restaurant Yeah, me neither For the record, <laughs> for
2: the record I came at it from eating <laughs> Do you think that the um, sense of, uh, like, everything's great, everything's wonderful, the sort of sense of hype that you get on the Internet? You read the website, you oh, you're the, the, the 25 right. hottest, everything's hot, we're all hot, it's all hot, I'm going to be hot. Doesn't that drive you insane?
1: Yes. Every ham sandwich, every piece of bacon. Bacon! Uh, everything. Every
2: little artichoke, Admiral.
0: Uh, to play devil's advocate here... I would say that it's not everything. I think that as a food writer, it's more, it's more interesting to tell people about stuff that you like, especially if it's not a review, if it's just a story about, you know, here's 800 words of interesting copy, and it's not a hyped-up restaurant that you then need to explain, well, hold on, it's gotten a lot of hype but it's maybe not as good as you think it's going to be but if you see something exciting you want to tell people about it and the internet facilitates that because you can say, look, go eat this sandwich, It's awesome, it's going to cost you $8 and it's going to be the best lunch you have all month
2: The internet facilitates hype, let's just be frank critics are, we're supposed to you know, we're supposed to have a jaundiced eye and I'm more and more accused of being too jaundiced or like jaded
1: Well, there are fads that become so excessive. Uh, kale, quinoa, burned carrots. I mean you go into like carrots. A, it's like a signature that you go into a place and you see, Burgers. oh I'm in the right place. This place
2: is with it. I'm eating burned carrots, baby. And, and, and burned I'm beets out. Let me tweet and, that. Uh,
1: uh, kale with everything. I wrote about kale forty years ago that it was a great vegetable, but I was talking about Kale the way it was in soul food restaurants, kale the way the Italians and the Chinese did, cooked very soft with a lot of fat and grease, salt pork or ham hocks, or the Italians did it with garlic and oil, smothered, but soft, and it was delicious. And now kale is dried and grilled and raw. It's. Really, quite obnoxious. It's horrible. Tail is horrible. But kale. everybody has kale? to have it. It's on the menu here. You if you, do. it's a buzzword. It tells the buzzword. people they're in the right place. Buzzword,
2: oh. What are your least favorite food writing words to use as a writer? Tasty. Tasty's a bummer. Generic. I use it quite a lot, actually. I, I never taste. do
1: because the first time I did, someone wrote it and said never use the word tasty. <laughs>
2: See the other one that I can't—I really drives me insane—is thrill. Thrill, yeah. I no. thrill to the taste of these. asparagus. Nobody says that. Yes, they do. No. Yes, they do. Toke. I hate toke. Toke. I don't toke. want to hear toke anymore. Toke is a
0: reference to the chef, unless you're talking about the hat. I don't want to hear what
2: or... anymore. <laughs> unctuous. I don't hear unctuous anymore. Unctuous
0: is the worst because everyone uses it incorrectly. Also,
2: we don't want to hear that anymore. We don't want to hear eatery anymore. I, I, I say this, but maybe, tell me if you agree or not, that, that being a restaurant critic, like all the other, being a critic, you a book critic or a movie critic, all the critics are there seeing the same book or movie or TV show, but obviously, um, in restaurants, things change all the time. And so, I think it's, a, it's the most subjective of the critic, critic disciplines. Wow. And what you try to be is consistent. But you can't be sort of all, all, all-knowing. Will you give me thoughts but on that?
1: I regard it as a performing art, cooking in restaurants. And in that respect, maybe closer to dance and theater, mm-hmm. because it has to be rendered every time it is to be experienced. And therefore, the performance can always be different. You know, the, the Met, Plaza do Domingo is better one night than another. So, I don't think every critic does experience the same thing.
0: So, is it, is the job, I, I think, I think a lot of people who are kind of step back and just read restaurant reviews, you know, once a week, it seems like the greatest job in the world. I think we've sort of talked about the pep peeves and the minutiae a lot, but is it as great as most people think it is as a profession? It
1: certainly was to me. I adored it, and I I still can't suspend critical faculties when I go into I love restaurants, and when I worked for Joe Baum on the creation of the Four Seasons, one of the most exciting times was 20 to 12 in the morning when the whole room is perfect and the sun is shining, and you're waiting for the first people to arrive, you know, and I found that very, maybe like, you know, the curtain goes up.
2: A, so I love the institution. It's a production.
1: I was once in a very famous coffee shop in Chicago called Lou Mitchell's. It's a huge coffee shop that caters to the mercantile exchange. And, and so they open at five in the morning and they do very fancy super breakfast. Everybody gets a prune and a piece of orange and yogurt. You wait online. And I was waiting online and about 15 minutes. And finally, I was going to be seated, and either the manager or the owner, I still don't know which, came over and took me to the seat, and he said, so where is your place? And I said, what do you mean, my place? He said, don't you have a restaurant? I said, no, what made you think so? He said, the way your eyes were working the room. (laughs)
2: Thank you for, for joining us, Mimi.
0: Was thank it, you, was you a for pleasure? asking me. It was thank fun you. and this I had a good This was excellent. I loved this lunch. Um, that's it for another edition of the Grub Street Podcast. As always, I'm Alan Sitzma for Adam Platt. And this time, thank you very much again for Mimi Sheraton. I want to give thanks to Andy Bowers and Laura Mayer at Panoply. Our producer, Sam Dingman, who is over there with no food. We got to give him some pasta. Uh, and I want to thank Slate as well. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thank you.